order for us to cut through, I think that entrepreneurial spirit can actually give companies a leg up to look future forward, you know, capitalize on trends, become first movers, taking those risks enable us to do that. And I think, you know, pushing yourself to think differently is what's going to ultimately add value to the business. Welcome to Top Shelf Integrity, where we give you an inside look at how we, the Beam Centauri on-premise team, maintain our best-in-class standards in the alcohol industry, and what makes us the best team in the business, bar none. It's about service at the end of the day, and we're going to show you how we do our thing so you can level up yours. What does Top Shelf Leadership do differently? What does it mean to show up for your customers and your teammates? How do you balance innovation and honoring legacy? It's all here. So grab a glass, pull up a chair, and let's pour one out. Welcome to the next episode of Top Shelf Integrity. Today we'll be discussing entrepreneurship and how the experience of working as an entrepreneur at at smaller endeavors translates into large organizations, uh, in our case, in the spirits world uh, at Beam Suntory. I'm John Horn, the Vice President of Hotels and Regional Accounts here at Beam Suntory, and I'm joined today by a very special guest and a good friend of mine for many years, um, Marguerite Loading. Welcome, Marguerite. It's amazing uh, to have you for today's discussion. Um, why don't you give a brief introduction of yourself and your role, and then definitely let me know what you're drinking. Awesome. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Marguerite Aloding, and I'm currently the Senior Marketing Director at Beam Centauri. And I'm focusing right now on our US RTB business, particularly on our recent acquisition, our brand On The Rocks. Um, as well as developing new-to-world, non-spirits-based RTDs. So I've been at Beam um, not quite as long as John, um, but (laughs) nine years, a little over nine years. Um, And I've been in the beverage industry for a little over 20. Um, So I started my career on the agency side, and then I jumped ship, moved over to the client side, worked for a much smaller organization called White Rock, um, and I worked on a number of brands um, ac- across a number of categories. Um, and then I joined Beam in 2012. And so now I'm here. Um, and so what am I drinking? I love the On The Rocks brand and I have for many, many years. And so I am drinking the Old Fashioned, which is one of my favorites. Oh, that's amazing. That's a great one. I had the spicy margarita last week uh, when I was down in D.C., which is one of my personal favorites of On The Rocks. It is um, one of the highest rated RTDs, it, um, it, Beverage it, Testing Institute. It's a good one. Unbelievably tasty. Uh, today, though, um, I'm here in the Chicago office and I could not find a bottle of On the Rocks. I should ask you where, where your old desk was. Um, so I grabbed a, a Jim Beam highball can. Um, so refreshing. And yes, I've been here just a handful of years longer than you. Um, anybody mm-hmm. that's listened to the previous podcast know it's, uh, it's my 16th year. At Beam Centauri um, in many different roles. But you mentioned you started to talk about your background and how you came up through smaller companies after you left the agency side, um, uh, which which we both have experience in. And uh, a lot of our experience is why I was so excited that that you were going to be today's guest. Um, But tell us a little bit more about about your background, your path, how that entrepreneurial uh, early experience has translated into you being in Beam Centauri. Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, I really do try to embrace that entrepreneurial mindset. Um, and for me, what that means is taking some risks. So 
I was offered the opportunity to join Beam Centauri back in 2012. And what that meant was that I had to relocate from the East Coast, had to uproot my family. It was going to be a huge change personally and professionally. But after several conversations with my husband, Simeon, we decided that, you know, oftentimes, you know, big risk comes big reward. And so we took the leap. We, you know, trusted um, in the company that, you know, I was going to go work for. And I will frankly say that it's probably the best decision, you know, of our lives. Um, When I first joined Beam, it was a little bit of a shock because it was so different from White Rock. Um, BSI, a much larger organization than I was accustomed to. There were so many processes, so many stakeholders, um, you know, versus my prior life. And at White Rock, what was really interesting was that I reported directly into the, you know, owner, president, and CEO. And so the approval process for me was not layered like it was at Beam. And so while we had processes in place, we stayed really agile. We stayed really nimble. You know, we reacted really quickly to the markets. Um, and, you know, we kind of used, you know, similar to what Beam Centauri uses in Japan is a PDCA model, which is a plan, do, check, act model. So ours probably not as robust as Centauri. Um, but, I, but I'll highlight just a, an example of like how that entrepreneurial spirit kind of comes through and how we're leveraging the PDCA. So I was sitting in a conference room. This was, must have been 10, 12 years ago. I, quite honestly, I can't remember. It was so long ago. But I was sitting in a conference room in downtown Portland. And we were preparing for our pipeline for Pinnacle Vodka. And we were tasting samples of flavored vodkas. And there was one that I tried that was just amazing. And it was called Whipped. And I was like, wow, this is special. It's something unique, but it's kind of a twist on something familiar. You know, there were vanilla vodkas that were out there in the market, but this was a different take on that. And so I remember just being so intrigued by the liquid. I literally got up in the middle of the meeting. I marched in the CEO office and I said, you have to try this. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm busy right now. And I was like, no, you just take one second and try the liquid. So, I mean, he tried it. He immediately agreed that it was going to be something amazing. And so, you know, he said to me, you know, and I quote, he's like, let's launch this immediately. And so we did that. Like we literally got to work. And, you know, from the time we tasted the liquids to the time it was in market, it was roughly six months, um, which is super compressed. And, you know, we were reacting, you know, really quickly. Um, But then we took it one step further. So once it was in market, we really tried to monitor and, you know, review the performance and kind of is it going to be sticky? Do consumers love it as much as we do? What was the trade's reaction? And so we found out that in the state of Washington, um, Pinnacle Whipped was on fire. And they were shipping truckloads of only Pinnacle Whipped, full trucks of only Pinnacle Whipped out to that state. So I called up the state manager of Washington at the time and said, hey, what's going on? Like, what are you doing in this market? Like, what's happening? And he said, your drink strategy is on point. And he said, you know, you can either mix it with orange juice or orange soda. He said, we're using in our sampling events and it's taken off. And the conversion for consumers to actually, you know, buy a bottle after the tasting is through the roof. And we're like, okay, noted. We need to do more of these. And then we were curious about the on-premise, like what's happening in the on-premise. And what we found out is that bartenders were doing something slightly different with it. 
And they were almost using it as an ingredient to cocktails to kind of zhuzh it up. And when we were mixing cocktails in our conference room and we couldn't quite get a cocktail right for whatever product we were launching, we would always add just a dash of the Pinnacle Whipped. And for whatever reason, it gave it a nice round balance. And so there were some learnings that we got from the market that we then, you know, implemented in all of the other markets um, to really kind of drive, you know, momentum behind the brand. And, um, you know, we also then saw competitors coming in, a lot of Me Too's of their whip products, and we wanted to own the space. So again, we adapted quickly and we launched a line of flavored whips. So we had cherry, we had orange, we had chocolate. And, you know, the, the brand grew. Um, and by the time Pinnacle was sold to BSI, it was close to a million cases for the entire WIP portfolio. So um, I, I thought it was interesting um, in terms of how agile you know, we were at White Rock and how quickly we were able to adapt to the market dynamics. Absolutely. You made that connection because at the beginning you were talking about White Rock and, and some of our listeners might not know that that was the company name that, yeah. that founded Pinnacle Vodkas. One more question for you. Um, you know, what drew you? to a company like White Rock as opposed to having a little bit of experience in the spirits industry and going for a big, a big company? Well, you know, what, 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 have you been a serial entrepreneur your whole life? Were you always looking for the hustle? Tell, just tell us a little bit more about, you know, what's so attractive about those small companies, at least earlier in a career. And both of us share that. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story. I know some of it, but we can unpack some of that. Um, yeah, for me, so when I was on the agency side, White Rock was actually my client. And I was kind of stolen away um, to start up an internal marketing department, which did not exist previously. And that was really exciting for me, you know, to build something from scratch and to have ownership um, and accountability um, and be a key decision, you know, maker in kind of what we do and how we build a business. That for me was the spark. It was like, yep, absolutely. Count me in. You know, it's going to be a challenge and I'm always up for a challenge. Um, you know, I learned about working in ambiguous situations and, you know, how to be a problem solver and all of that really got me excited. And so the longer I worked at White Rock Distilleries, um, the more I just fell in love with the spirits and the alcohol category. It's, it's fun, it's dynamic. Um, and so I knew that at that juncture, like I'm in this for life and I need to build out my toolbox and I need to bring some of my you know, capabilities and points of view to other businesses to help them grow and help them think differently about, you know, what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, and so that's also what led me to being Centauri because I knew that I was going to get exposure to things that I didn't have at White Rock. And I knew that I was going to grow professionally and build out that toolbox that I needed um, to maybe one day own my own business, you know, down the road, who knows. Um, but I also thought that I could bring value. Um, because I was thinking differently than other folks who had always worked in a large corporation. And um, I'm all about getting scrappy. I'm all about, you know, sometimes it's the small things that really make a difference. It doesn't have to be these big, grandiose entrepreneurial initiatives. You know, there are little things that can really add value to the business. Um, and that's that's what I was, you know, challenged myself to do is, you know, how can I come into being Centurion and add some value um, from from that? Yeah. Yeah, you hit on a couple of things there that just brought back some stories and some memories. I mean, my mom 
told me at a very early age that even before most of the kids my age could talk, when she was wheeling me around in the crib, I was introducing myself to people. Yeah, I'm John Horn. If you need anything, I live at 7610. You know, <laughs> I'm giving her address away. And at a young age, and you hit on a couple of things about, you know, creating something out of nothing or having a bigger hand in something that, that you had a little bit more control over, whether it was, you know, when I was an altar boy figuring out weddings and funerals, right, and making friends with the right priests to make sure that the the Friday and Saturday shifts were pretty booked because uh, it, it was more lucrative. You know, when I had a paper route, you know, um, I realized at the time, and this is going back a lot of years because I'm old. Um, the New York Daily News came out in the morning, but the post at that time was an afternoon paper. So most of the kids in the neighborhoods around me would have one route and it would either be before school or after school. Well, I figured out, well, it's at two different times of the day. Why don't I take a daily news one in the morning and then a post one in the afternoon? And then all of a sudden started, you know, subcontracting out in the surrounding neighborhoods, figuring out that hustle. Um, but it, it's been in my blood. Um, it's just part of my mentality. Um, you know, even though I, I graduated with a with a finance degree from St. John's, I paid my way through school by working in bars and nightclubs. And it was about, you know, the hustle. And can I have four jobs at once and still balance school? And, you know, uh, from going from working in the places to promoting the places to becoming a director at some of the nightclubs in New York at the time to to, you know, try to exact some some new thinking. And, and some some innovation into something that was getting a little bit stayed, in my opinion, after I spent a couple of years doing it. Um, and, and then our, our world's got a little bit closer um, to some of your story. You know, I took a crack at, at opening up a restaurant, um, you know, after doing a, a small stint on Wall Street because I had a finance degree. And what else do you do? Um, but wasn't for me. Right. It wasn't my mentality. It wasn't, you know, everything you read, all the movies they make about Wall Street back in the. 90s you know 100 percent true 100 percent true and for some people that's the the catalyst and for me it was uh it was a nightmare um but you know had the opportunity at a pretty young age to to open up a restaurant and, and see if my vision for something in this industry um of the on-premise could 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 make a dent right or make an impact or bring something new to a market like new york city and like most young entrepreneurs six months of success, one year of success. And then, Oh, now what do we do? Right. And, and, and myself and my partners didn't have that experience in the background, all of us being around the same, you know, early twenties. And then we failed. And that's the first time I really learned about, I wish I would have failed a little bit earlier. Right. I'd I'd rather fail fast, right. And learn a lesson and then parlay that lesson into something else. Um, But the lesson I learned is that, you know, opportunities come from different places and sometimes where you least expect them. So as we were getting ready to shut down the restaurant, one of my great customers also was starting up a business. He was starting up an agency, an experiential marketing agency geared towards the on-premise. So he was using me as a bit of a test study when we were actually a hot place in the first six months and had all the accolades that came with that. Um... And he asked me, you know, well, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I have no idea. You know, every time I didn't like something or any time I had to fund something, I always went back to nightlife in New York City. That's kind of what I've been doing for most of my adult life. Um, he said, well, why don't you take a shot with us and help us start this experiential marketing agency? You can run New York. None of us have any idea what we're doing, um, but we love the on-premise. We all come from an on-premise background and we think there's a better way 
for big companies, small companies, medium companies to promote their brands um, in a more organic way, in a more experiential way than just having it be what we would expect a promotion to be. You know, the same thing you get a sample of at Costco is the same thing you get an example of at a nightclub in New York City. It's just person dressed a little bit differently in a different environment. Um, long story short, you know, the four of us, um, turned into six of us and 12 or 13 years later, we had, you know, built businesses. Some of them were able to be sold off. Then we started new crazy idea businesses and some of those failed incredibly miserably and, and lost all of us a lot of, a lot of money, time and, and energy. And then this is where you're in my paths really come together. You know, we None of us had experience directly in the spirits industry outside of them being a client of ours when we had the agency. And we said, well, how hard could it be to make a spirit, right? How hard could it be to make a vodka? Let's let's get into the super premium category and see if we can challenge some of this this new tier of vodka that was coming out. Um, And then just like, you know, White Rock and Pinnacle getting acquired by Beam Suntory, ours took a more circuitous route. Um, we were owned by uh, three different companies that are competitors of Bean Centauri before it made its way to Beam Centauri. But F and Vodka is, you know, the brand that we started, and now it's our port part of our portfolio too. Um, you know, uh, me, much like you, and the story you just told. Once I got a taste of this industry and realized that, you know, once you're inside of being a supplier, once you're inside of the nuts and bolts from production to consumer experience, it's way different than if it's just a casual thing you do on weekends or when you're out or at holiday parties with your family. Um, and you got to go dig under a cupboard somewhere to find that bottle that, you know, uncle Juan likes or aunt Julie, you know, prefers gin. So where's that one bottle of gin that I put under the sink last Christmas, you know, all of that stuff, um, became a true passion. And, uh, I think we both ended up in a good place. And I know when you joined um, the organization, we kind of found each other early and shared some of those more recent stories that we just told because it was very similar. And and I was really curious four years after I had done it. Wow. There's still people that are coming from entrepreneurial things that want to, that want to give the big company a shot. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great story, John. Um, I, I actually have lots of, of memories when I first joined the organization. You were definitely an ally um, for me. But before I, I talk about that, I wanted you sparked something for me. Um, you know, I think, you know, having that entrepreneurial mindset, there's a lot of things at its core in terms of what that could mean. You know, it means taking risks. It means being courageous. It means being agile, like all of those things. But what hit home for me, and I agree 100%, it's about the fact that we cannot be afraid to fail. Failure is going to happen. And, you know, you're you know, saying that let's, you know, fail and fail fast, I think is, is important, but it's also critically important to fail and learn from that failure, get back up, persevere, push through, try it again. So that I think is, is critical. The other piece that I think is really important as you think about some of these maybe smaller organizations um, that maybe have embedded that entrepreneurial spirit into their culture um, it's about focus. If we think about them, these companies have one, maybe two brands that they're developing and that they're selling and their passion really lies in just those two or three brands. And so what what's important for BSI to just think about is, you know, how do we bring focus to what we're doing? And I'll give you one example where I feel like we're doing two things, the, you know, not afraid to fail 
and then how we bring focus. And this is relative to the business that I currently work on today. So it's RTDs. Um, you know, I was asked back in February of 2018 to move from my current role in innovation to essentially start up this business model that would unlock, you know, the potential for BSI to enter into this category. I was like, sure, sign me up. I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to help figure it out. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to take on this challenge. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was just me. And then over the you know course of three years, you know, we continued to get support and resources as we tried to manage through, um, you know, a very difficult business model we were trying to address. And, you know, there are some opportunities we pursued and failed. And we didn't just stop there and say, nah, we're not going to do RTD. We continued to find those people that were going to push through and really find a solution for us to enter into the space. So fast forward three years later, we now have On The Rocks in our portfolio, which is an amazing brand, a first mover advantage in the you know the super premium RTD space. Um, we've launched master brands like Hornitos and Jim Beam in RTD. And then we just you know signed this strategic partnership with, with Boston Beer. All of that um, you know, has happened in addition to the fact that this organization has realized focus is key. And so we're also standing up dedicated teams cross-functionally where their one passion point and what they need to focus on is how to make RTD a big success to help us reach our long-term ambition. So I feel like even larger organizations can take some of these very critical core competencies that you need to have um, as an entrepreneur and translate that to actually, you know, make some progress within their business. You just hit on a lot of great, great topics there because, you know, we share that same view and I don't think it's a crazy view of entrepreneurship. You know, there's the taking risks. There's not being afraid to fail. There's about either finding a solution to a problem that does exist or a solution to an opportunity that nobody knows exists, um, which is interesting. And it's harder to do as you get to be a bigger company. Um, because there's efficiencies, right? There, there's scale, there's interdepartmental things. So, so what you just said about, you know, if, if it's a small group of people that are trying to get something done with a hyper focus on something that they're incredibly passionate about that they created, that's the definition of entrepreneurship, right? It's whether your scale is four people and one crazy idea and you were able to raise X amount of dollars versus I'll give you an example. When we were launching Effin, right, it, it was it was March of 2003. We were going to launch in November of 2002. And we had a complicated package and it was coming over from Holland, the product and the, all the equipment to laser print the PVC rubber sleeves were over in Holland and they all had to be put on by hand at the time because there was no machine for that or we didn't have enough money to buy the machine for that. And we had the name of a, of, of the brand that we were going to call it. And, um, the first 6,000 sleeves, you know, were printed and they sent them over to us for review and we fell in love with them and it was starting to become real and they were on bottles and there was liquid in the bottles for our first set of samples. And, and we couldn't afford like lawyers at the time, right? We had a patent lawyer, right? And a copyright person like on retainer. And we didn't think to call them every time we made a decision about a name, right? Or what we were going to write on the bottle. And we came up with a name that when we put it through a final test, they said, oh, no, 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 no. A huge multimillion dollar corporation, billion dollar corporation has the rights to that particular name for anything liquid inside of a bottle. You guys have to go back to square one. 
talk about quick pivots and not being afraid to fail and not getting us down because there was a certain amount of capital that went into that first decision that was now sunk right? <laughs> that we could never get back. Um, but we, we decided on, and it was, it's a story for a different time, how the name Effen came to be, you know, it's a Dutch word. It means smooth, even balanced, but, but there's a longer story behind it. But four or five months later, we had pivoted, made all of those decisions, made sure that we got the right, you know, legal things done for that name and, and the packaging and everything else. And we launched in, in, in March after having this snafu happen in November, that, that lack of fear of failure or that not knowing what you don't know about how most of these processes work and how many people, as you mentioned before, are involved in every decision. And once it becomes a, like we weren't scared, right? We got shut down five months before and we were like, all right, well, how much money do we have left in the bank? Could we take the second shot at it and launch at this really inopportune time? Cause we were aware of two competitors coming out five months after us. Um, so all three of us launched actually in the same month of the same year and we were scared, right? We were a little bit scared at that point because we were like, Ooh, we're crazy, but are we crazy enough to go at 30 times the amount that we spend on money and 300 times the amount we spent on money? Um, but at its core, you know, all of the things that you mentioned and a couple of the things that I said is, you know, if you believe in it, if you have a crazy idea, if you're not afraid to go with your, your intuition sometimes to launch something like your example, when Paul said yes to a new flavor, when there were so many things on a plate and who knew how big pinnacle whipped would become and how industry changing, you know, F and for all of the fun stories that I share about it, it's still, you know, a, a drop <laughs> in a very large ocean of vodka. And we can't seem to ever break it through a certain ceiling. And 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 even back then, we kind of knew that it wasn't going to be a multi-million dollar case brand. Probably a couple hundred thousand cases was going to be our top, but we'd all make a good living off of that. Maybe somebody would buy us someday and we'd make a better living off of it. Um, but the game-changing nature of, of that innovation, um, from your example of Pinnacle, and then the, the craze that Whipped started in the flavor vodka category is something that seed of an idea, right? Seed of an idea from a tasting, everything you just mentioned. Um, which just brings me to another question because you and I can tell stories to each other every day, all day long for hours. Um, why do you think it's becoming increasingly popular? You mentioned a couple of the outputs of that, right? Of, of what companies could be doing or what they are doing, but why do you think you know, at its core, so many more large companies, whether it's spirits industry, whether it's BSI competitors, whether it's other CPG companies, other industries, why do you think it's becoming so increasingly important for these big companies to continue to push entrepreneurship or at least have it in their mission statements and what they talk to investors about? Why do you think that's becoming so prolific and something that, that seems to be on everybody's mission statement? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think that it's been a buzzword for some time. I mean, even when I started at Beam, I think it was in the job description. Like that's the mindset you had to have. And I was like, group, count me in. Um, but I think it has grown in importance. Um, you know, particularly in the Alkbev industry, largely because the landscape is evolving, you know, smaller companies are entering into the space and there's a blurring of the lines. So beer players are entering into spirits, spirits into beer. There's even like non-elk players like getting in, you know, action in in Elk Bev. And so 
organizations need to take notice and they are, and they need to think and act differently because they, they're no, it's no longer about, you know, Beam Some Tory competing with other big companies. Beam Some Tory is competing against every other company, large or small. And, you know, the direct competitors, like our spirits competitors, they might not only be, you know, our competitors. And so essentially we're all vying for share of mind and share of throat. And so in order for us to cut through, I think that entrepreneurial spirit can actually give companies a leg up to, you know, look future forward, you know, capitalize on trends, become first movers, you know, taking those risks enable us to do that. Um, and I think, you know, pushing yourself to think differently is what's going to ultimately add value to the business. And if we're not doing it as a bigger company, I can tell you that those smaller companies, it is culturally like embedded in them and they are going to be pushing the boundaries. So that's why I feel like it's it's important for us as larger organizations to have that mindset because we're competing against companies that it's second nature to them. Yeah. It's always a lot more expensive to to buy the little person that figured it out versus you trying to adapt a culture, which isn't yeah. easy, right? And, you know, creating a culture. And, and I think you just nailed it on the head. So I'm not going to add anything about why big companies are doing it. But when you have the increased consolidation in certain industries, and it seems to be prolific throughout ours, right, until you get to a point where it's just not feasible to consolidate anymore because you'd have too much of a category, um, you have to evolve your culture, right, and your capabilities and the people and the mindset that you bring in. So, you know, when 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 I joined the industry, when you originally joined, you know, an agency, um, here's the rules, right? When I worked on Wall Street, there was a book. Right. I told this story on one of the, the, the previous podcasts. You know, there was a book and this is the words that you said. This is how you said it. Here's where you inflected what. And if they said this, you said this. And if they said this, you said this. And if they said this, you said this. And that's what is your pitch book. And you had to learn it until you knew it without having the pitch book in front of you. And, and that was, you know, that was the box that you were put in. And there was only one way to do it. And here's our success model. Just do what we say. We'll pay you handsomely for it. But don't think. Don't think. Don't think for yourself. Um, what I think is missing in a model like that, that I'm so happy, you know, six or seven years ago when Beam and Suntory came together, because that was really, to your example earlier about when you first joined, it was a buzzword. Mm -hmm. But did we really ever act on it, and at least in a meaningful way, right, that, that, that showed the output? One of the things that I got most excited about when, when the two companies, Beam and Suntory, came together is this mindset of Gemba gonna say that <laughs> that was that was a good one right yeah, nice um yeah. you know which means you know the actual place or the real place and and for us it translates to you know the place where things are happening that you should know about right where your product is being consumed who's consuming it what are they talking about you know getting as close to the customer and the consumer as you can and, and i think for us as large as Centauri is, as large a part of Centauri that Beam Centauri is, that and there's many other companies besides ours that 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 do that, right? And take the 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 ideas and the conversation. You know what what I try to tell teams um, that I've been fortunate enough to manage when I've had those roles in my career is every conversation, right? Every interaction is an opportunity to learn something. If you're not taking that opportunity then things are going to become very stale and you're going to find a pattern to do your job more efficiently, but there's not going to be a lot of new output and someone's eventually going to catch up to you. Somebody can always train to be almost as good as you or be in the same conversation as you. 
Um, and that's what happens to people that don't think, you know, having um, this culture around Gemba and, and being out there, whether you're the CEO of Suntory multinational global company, um, or you're the person that started yesterday in, in a new on-premise role or off-premise role, uh, calling on bars, restaurants, or calling on liquor stores, um, being in that moment and, and over the past six or seven years, having that be such a fabric of what we do and how we look to hire and how we react and how we act. It's virtually impossible sometimes to always be first to market. It's really hard even to be a first fast follower. Um, but going from a, you know, second slower follower closer to a fast follower to eventually a spot, at least in some categories or some parts of the business where you're willing to take that risk to be a first mover. To me, and I know every company has a different name for it, but to me, that that was probably the largest game changer when it came to thinking and hiring and, and having an entrepreneurial company um, mindset. Yeah, I, I would take the Gemba piece, John. I think everything you said spot on. The Gemba piece for me, you know, taking it one step further, because the way that I build my teams and the culture and the folks that I work with is very collaborative, which is almost counterintuitive to what like an entrepreneurial spirit is, which can sometimes be a little bit more individual oriented. Um, but I love to collaborate and I love to build relationships with my cross-functional partners. And so for me, Gemba does mean getting out to the market, talking to consumers, getting into the trade and the bars and the retailers and all of that. But it also means getting to the place and where our products are made. And so we recently had a trip down to Kentucky um, over the summer this year, actually. And, you know, we spent two days with, you know, the supply chain team, the production team, the packaging team, one, just to meet face to face, but then also just to understand their perspective on how they have to manage the business from their angle and, mm -hmm. and where the challenges are and where we need to collaborate and partner, um, you know, as business owners to ensure that we are doing the best we can for our On the Rocks right. brand. Um, that was the key topic for um, our trip down there. So it was really important. We got to walk the lines. Um, you know, the team got to go to the new Fred Bino distillery um, and get a, you know, behind the scenes uh, peek at that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think getting into the markets, amazing, great learnings, great insights, but also that connectivity to, you know, our production teams and, you know, the the supply chain teams and things that are a little bit maybe less glorious, um, but also critically important to understanding how a business is managed. Yeah. How quickly the marketplace changes in any industry, especially around CPG and incredible in the past handful of years alone of how it's evolved. And you mentioned it before, how the lines are blurred. You're not a wine drinker. You're not a spirits drinker. You're not a beer drinker anymore. And then all of a sudden you're a seltzer drinker. No, you consume beverage alcohol. You don't. And you're looking for a format that fits the day part that you're drinking in. You know what, what feels comfortable and confident for you to drink and the categories that you gravitate to that, that taste good for you and the sessionability of it and how many of them you want to have. And if there's a good for you component to it, um, but, but the thing that you mentioned around the collaboration was, was a point that I wanted to make when, when you transition from a company where you're the sole proprietor, or there's just a few of you that make the decision and you know, you're going to make some wrong decisions and you might be able to recover. You might not. It's easier than when you, it was one of my biggest struggles when I joined uh, beam Centauri, um, at the very beginning, a million years ago, 
coming from 13 or 14 years of nothing but four and then eventually six of us kind of making decisions and hey john i know you're a new yorker native but we really need your talents in chicago right now to kick us this new project this new brand this new company we got to move you there and then six years go by and it's you know hey how about you open up the 45 markets for us. So you're going to be on the road for like the next two years on a plane and hotels, but it's good for the bit. Yeah, absolutely willing to do it. Hey, you got to move back. You know, all of those things are easy to do. What you mentioned that just struck me, which is so spot on, but took me a little while to learn was when I had a great idea or what I thought was a great idea. It wasn't just me making the decision and it wasn't me convincing three people that I love and trust that I worked with for the past 13 or 14 years to go for it. You know, the example I had, which, which is where I learned this lesson, my first job at Beam Suntory, um, after it was, you know, Allied Demec was purchased by, by Beam Suntory, um, or Jim Beam Brands at the time, um, you know, I got moved to Michigan, you know, the only job available. I wanted to come desperately try a big spirits company after all of my smaller experiences. And the only job that seemed like a good fit or that I was interested in or that they'd have me do, uh, was based in Detroit, Michigan looking after a bunch of uh, control states as a marketer, not a classically trained marketer, you know, which, which is why I have a finance degree. Um, what I saw was happening with the flavor profiles, our portfolio, some of it fit, some of it didn't fit. But the thing that I learned after just doing a little bit of market research and just learning the new state that I was living in is that Michigan is the largest producer of cherries in North America. Might be even the world. Um, but definitely in North America. And one of the biggest brands in Michigan, which Beam owned at the time and still does, was DeKuyper, uh, which is a line of cordials. And uh, I got the opportunity through um, somebody that we worked with um, to go up to the Upper Peninsula where all the cherries are made and just meet with the person that was running the Cherry Council of U.S. I didn't even know that existed right before I moved there. We have a brief conversation off the top of my head based off of something that she said. I said, if we could do real juice in a bottle of DeKuyper and, uh, you know, call it Michigan Cherry and partner with you and do something, you know, would you be open to that? And she said, sounds like an interesting idea. And all the years I've been doing this, no one's ever come to. So I rush back, right? I call my boss who's based in Chicago. And I'm like, I just had the most brilliant idea I've ever come up with in my life. Um, and I've lived in Michigan for like six months at the time. So I know Michigan, I know the spirits industry, all of the things that weren't true, but I wasn't afraid to come up. I wasn't afraid to speak up, right. Or to come up with an idea. And the first thing, and he was a 30 something year employee of beam. So he wasn't looking for a lot of new ideas at the time. Right. And he was like, what are you doing all the way up in the upper peninsula of Michigan? You should be down in Detroit. That's where I hired you. That's where you moved. Uh, long story short, completely shot me down. This is why, why, this is why we can't, this is why not, this is why we can't. And I was at the end of it, I was like, I'm going to give it up for now because you're frustrating me, but I'm, I'm not going to let it die on the vine. I'm going to go do my own market, you know, get out there, talk to bartenders, talk to everybody else. The one thing that I missed in my conversation, which made it happen, you know, a year later, it did happen by the way, and we actually still make it and sell it. And it does, you know, it does what it does, which isn't huge, but isn't small. I didn't realize in a big company how many different departments you had to talk to when you wanted to create a new product. 
I had only created or had a hand in creating one product in my life. Um, and, and to me, it seemed reasonably easy because everybody complimented each other and we were, you know, four or six of us were all the departments in the company. I didn't have an idea how it affected supply chain, right? I didn't have an idea which distillery it would come out of because I didn't even know where the Kuiper was made back then. It was made in Ohio. Um, no idea about the interdependencies and the interconnectivity of all of the departments that make stuff happen in a big company. And I'm a reasonably fast learner, but this one took me a little bit longer to go in and build the right relationships and have the right conversations and get down to the plants and, you know, know what the concerns are, right. And know why 100 new things don't come out every day. Um, for big companies like us, even though the capability, like physical capability might be there is because there's a lot of things and there's a lot of people, there's marketing concerns, there's sales concerns, there's distributor concerns, there's plant concerns, there's innovation team concerns, there's flavor concerns, there's whether we can get it registered or not. Can you actually say something is a Michigan, you know, long story longer, um, or long story short, I guess I should say, cause I'm going to learn my lesson. Um, <laughs> That's what you just sparked is, is that memory of me um, coming up with what I thought was the most brilliant idea. It's going to be 100,000 cases. I'm going to put my stamp on this giant company of my entrepreneurship. And I was like, ooh, there's 15 different people I have to talk to when you create a new product. And there's a process in place and there's timelines that you have to adhere to and everything else. And that was something that was a huge learning experience for me. But on the other end, when it actually got made and we celebrate it, you know, a brand new product that this six month, you know, veteran of the company had had an idea for, you know, and you just mentioned collaboration and how you build teams. If you believe and there's a healthy collaboration and a healthy loose, but set of guardrails around how you think, how you share, how you're not afraid to bring up an idea, even after the second you think it, you think it's the silliest idea you ever came up with having that comfort in a team within a large company sometimes is a bigger enabler than, you know, a culture line uh, that you get reviewed on twice a year. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think the other thing for me that Suntory also brought over um, to, to beam Suntory when they acquired beam um, was this idea of washing, which is something that I do a lot. And that is another way to collaborate um, and get alignment with your key stakeholders, like along, you know, so that they're involved, they're brought in early, they understand the vision, they they can actually support the path forward. Um, and so I do a lot of that to, you know, ensure that we're getting input from folks early, um, but also making our ideas stronger and having people kind of provide their perspective um, is important to being engaged in the business and, you know, just moving things along. So yeah, I think collaboration and, and memo washing is, is definitely, you know, something that I, I take to heart and I do quite often. I'd be remiss since it's the part of the business that I manage. If I didn't talk a little bit about entrepreneurship and the on-premise. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'll say it in the context of where we are today, because my opinion a year and a half ago about uh, innovation and entrepreneurship in the on-premise probably would be different than it is today. Hopefully fingers crossed, knocking on wood post COVID, right. Or at least what we're dealing with, with the Delta variant right now, going through one of the hardest times, if not the hardest time for the on-premise since prohibition, um, 
really sparked something that I hadn't seen in this industry. You know, people were being more creative in the types of places they were opening up and the quality of what a craft person behind a bar was, um, you know, from when I was bartending to pay my way through college and it was this and this and this and, you know, to what, to what that evolved into. And I think spirits industries and beverage alcohol industries in general were innovating, but it started, I don't know, after 16 years, I can say from experience, it started to feel to me like it was becoming super formulaic, right? Beer was trying to combat spirits because spirits was stealing share. Wine was trying to, you know, combat spirits because spirits was taking share. And this was like a 10 year pattern and, 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 you know, line extensions versus new products. And can we handle new products? And then the consolidation at the wholesaler, the distributor network, right? And how many suppliers, if all of the suppliers are just in a handful of distributors, um, can they take on another product in a meaningful way? Right. And, And do you still have that, that, uh, tide raises all boats of the, the the entrepreneur that's coming up with a crazy idea that challenges us. And you mentioned a few minutes ago, just to interject into my own thought, um, you know, the partnership with Boston Beer, right? You know, since the lines are so blurred today around beverage alcohol, um, I think we're going to have a first mover advantage and, and we might not get it all right. Right, right out of the box, and this really unique and interesting partnership between two companies that would have a couple of years ago can consider themselves, com- you know, fierce competitors. And if you come out with an RTD, you're challenging me in beer, and that's taking from my occasions. And I never would want to partner to to the evolved thought and the entrepreneurial thought because Boston Beer's history is very entrepreneurial, as is Beam, as is Suntory. To even have that conversation, you know, is an exciting one. To me, how that translates to the on-premise um, is meaningful in a bunch of different ways. Not only taking the new products that we're going to create and, and, and having new occasions or new day parts or new types of spirits um, or, or format of spirits that people are going to drink. Going through something like COVID and figuring out cocktails to go, right, which, which we talked about in depth on, on a couple of other podcasts, um, having that be a thing that was only really allowed in two states, but as a, as a means of survival, it is now getting past legislation to the point where, you know, there's, there's pushback now. At the beginning, it was, no, this is the only way our favorite bars and restaurants are going to be able to survive, to the point now, like, okay, hold your horses. You know, that could be a big revenue stream for you. Um, which might threaten other revenue streams in different parts of the industry um, to, to some of the stuff that we had done and got involved with, with, with drink solutions, low touch, no touch. You don't have as much staff cause you can't afford as much staff. Here's some solutions that might alleviate some of those issues. The evolution of what accounts are doing, right? Where it, it used to be, you have to come to my place to have my experience because that's what I've curated for you to what is this option going to look like when somebody takes it home? Are they going to be able to do it justice? Do I have to tweak my recipe, my formula, the format of how I'm giving it to? And I think what we're seeing now, um, hopefully again, you know, on the, on the tail end of, of this horrible pandemic that changed the industry forever, is um, different collaborations and different people coming together and more of a, a selflessness. I think across the entire industry um, 
where where people that used to be competitors, right? Because there's nine bars on one block and I compete with all of you. And my job is to steal your customer and your job is to steal my customer. And this is our healthy relationship. Two, you know, how do we elevate the industry, right? How do we make sure that bars and restaurants and hotels and, and everywhere, you know, from a pub to a high energy nightclub, um, you know, how do we make sure we all survive? How do we make sure that we're all giving the consumer you know, something interesting to, to, to sell, to experience in our place, to have those healthy differentiators. But to me, it's that combined with the fact that the, you know, the staffing, you know, when, when, when you have an industry that's as hard hit as the on-premise was, and so many people that couldn't earn a living because there were either shutdowns or there were curfews or there were no shifts to be had, or my place that I worked at for the past 20 years closed um, because they couldn't survive you know, this, this horrible situation, um, out of that horrible situation now is a brand new generation that is coming into this industry for the first time, just like you and I did once upon a time and then fell in love with, with this side of the business. Although we worked in multiple sides of it, um, that unto itself is going to bring to me another layer of innovation, another layer of entrepreneurship, another layer of, of new thinking on things that we don't even know are coming yet. So for the on-premise, you know, it used to be when you thought about entrepreneurship and the on-premise, it was always that person owned that restaurant. They had the foresight. Now it's there for 60 years. That person's amazing entrepreneur. Well, that person had a great concept. They were able to scale it. They've got 300 around the country. Great entrepreneur. What I think and what I'm seeing uh, now that now that we're traveling again and we're, we're, we're back in the Genba and when we're talking to people is I do think that there's another layer of, of innovation and entrepreneurship that's going to hit the on-premise. And I couldn't be more excited to, to see what that delivers. Yeah. I'm excited about the on-premise as well, particularly for our on the rocks brand. You know, there's so much potential and you know what that brand stands for and the convenience of bottling the bar um, and bringing that experience, you know, from the bar to wherever, you know, they're consuming, whether it be at home or at a friend's house or whomever, wherever. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's an exciting channel for sure. Um, and I'm excited to see where it takes us. Awesome. Well, first of all, thank you so much again for joining. Um, this, yeah. this is an amazing conversation. I can go on as, as you can for another hour if we wanted to. <laughs> um, but we will give the editors a break and let them be able to chop this up to something that, that the audience could, could digest. Um, but thank you so much. I appreciate it. I just want to propose a toast so you can raise your on the rocks and I will raise my Jim Beam highball. Um, a simple one, you know, to entrepreneurship, you know, we, hopefully we told some stories that the audience uh, enjoyed and, and maybe even learned from. Um, so I would, I would just raise my glass to entrepreneurship and, and, and innovation and just say, you know, keep challenging, keep innovating, keep collaborating, keep evolving. Um, because that's where magic happens, right? The days of working for a company for 50 years, getting a gold watch and then calling it a day and keeping that plaque on your wall that you worked for that company for 50 years is, is, is gone. And I think uh, we're in a great environment of entrepreneurship and I can't wait uh, to see what comes next. So thank you thank so you. much, my friend. I'm raising my glass and thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll talk to you next time. Top Shelf Integrity is brought to you by Beam Centauri, Inc., Chicago, Illinois. Remember to always drink responsibly.